and good evening. You are listening to the Coalition Radio Network. Outrage porn free, civilly disobedient media. My name is Pat Ford, and this is the Pat Ford Hour. Tonight, after a soft opening last week, you could consider our inaugural show. Of course, we've been on the air since 2013 in a variety of formats and a variety of homes. We moved to our own, well, our own little slice of heaven here, high in the hills above Providence, Rhode Island, our own network. where We've got six original shows, original programming on evenings throughout the week. And, of course, I do, as you know, reporting throughout the day, whether it be at Halitosis Hall, our state house, whether it be trailing, if you will, some say stalking, our governor, Dan McKee, and, and a variety of, of, well, folks who roam the halls of Mordor. So we decided a few weeks ago that what was missing from, from the, if you will, from the family of shows was, well, my own show that I'd done for years. But the focus really has been sort of building this nascent network of, of independent programming, arranging everything from, I believe, and it follows us tonight, one of the great foreign policy shows on the, on the net, as we stand, as well as some fun, like we have our Golf News RI guys, and we also have the Sirius. And, of course, I'm talking about RAMP, a real access motivates progress. Tina Peterson brings life and ideas and guests to folks in the mobility community who find themselves physically challenged. But tonight, we get back to the basics. Anyone who knows me knows that I am a libertarian. I lead the libertarian movement. Not a pretend libertarian, not a libertarian leading anything but a libertarian. And it's important to me that we engage, and I'll I'll paraphrase some of my friends on the progressive left, that we engage in economic justice in this country. And and my definition of economic justice is probably very different from a lot of others. I am a free market capitalist. I believe that free market capitalism is the mechanism by which the individual realizes their full human potential. And in doing so, I want to create if you will, the seeds to plant around New England for economic justice. And economic justice, in my mind, is the opportunity for everyone, regardless of faith, nation of origin, ethnicity, any one of the number of, if you will, isms that we talk about, to give them the opportunity to succeed. And in doing so, create wealth for everyone in their own personal wealth ecosystem, in their own personal environment, so that they can then turn and invest in other people's business, and, and on and on and on, so that everyone, everyone may find success at some level. Joining me tonight is Reason Foundation Senior Fellow, Balin Litikin. Uh, he is a food lawyer. We're going to get that into that in, in, in weeks to come, I hope. He's a scholar and adjunct law professor. He's the author of Biting the Hand That Feeds Us, How Fewer Smarter Laws Would Make Our Food System More Sustainable. And that is on my must-read list. Mr. Linekin also serves on the board of directors of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. And that's another area that we want to explore. <clears throat> this show is based in Rhode Island, and we've got everyone here. We've got, obviously, a strong farming community. We've got a seafood community like no other. And then someone we're going to mention more than once tonight, and who, in full disclosure, is a sponsor of this show, as we like to call him a refugee from Big Soda. 
And that's, of course, the Yacht Club Bottling Company, who does make the finest soda in America and the finest root beer. Attorney Linekin, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, before we get into your article, and I, we published the article all over the web today, uh, where we're going to talk about the unexpected impacts of, of, of taxation on food and, and, and products of its like. But tell us a little bit more about yourself. How did you get involved in food law? How did you get involved in what is an exploding movement around the nation to bring food production of every, of every type, whether it be seafood, uh, produce, uh, meat and beef products, soda? Around the nation, it, it's, it's exploding, and at the same time, the firm hand of government is reaching up from the grave, if you will, and, and grasping us by the ankles and, and refusing to let go. Tell us about a little bit your background, how you got there. Sure. Um, I'm asked this question a lot, and I rarely answer it the same way twice. <laughs> but I always answer this similarly with the, you know, those few, that sort of uh, uh, preamble. Um, I guess when I was in, uh, before law school, I had a food policy blog. It was uh, one of the first food policy blogs. Um, and during law school, I think, you know, so obviously I was interested in food law. I, I interviewed Anthony Bourdain, um, one of my first uh, written wow. works uh, about, uh, I accused him of being a libertarian and we had a discussion about whether he was or wasn't. Um, he was actually uh, in many ways held many uh, libertarian beliefs and, uh, or just uh, the sort of traditional civil liber libertarian where there's a, a left libertarian and sometimes right alliance uh, around civil liberties. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I've, I've been interested in, in this uh, space uh, for a while. And when I was in law school, in constitutional law class, we, we learned a lot about, uh, you know, obviously a variety of constitutional law issues. Many of the cases were actually food law cases. And um, Wickard v. Filburn, for example, was a New Deal case um, about a man, and I'm oversimplifying, uh, oversimplifying vastly, but a, a man who was uh, raising wheat and the USDA told him that he could not keep wheat for himself, basically, there was a quota. And he said, he, you know, listen, I wanna you know, feed my animals and I wanna make bread at home and you can't tell me what to do. And the Supreme Court said, no, actually the USDA can tell you what to do uh, in this case. And so that's one example. There, um, <clears throat> it struck me as interesting that in the course of all of these let's say five or 10 seminal constitutional law cases uh, that no one ever simply said, you know what, I have a right to eat this food. I have a right to grow this food. I have a right to sell this food, whatever the case may be, to share this food. And so I started thinking, well, you know, people have rights around food, but where, you know, it's, it's one thing to create a right out of whole cloth, um, but those are not the rights that matter. Um, and, and they're not true rights. Actual rights, ones that we can point to and say, hey, listen, historically in this country, we were able to do this and the constitution protects it. Um, or, you know, the constitution should protect this because of some reasons pertaining uh, elsewhere to the document. I don't know if that's a little too nope, nebulous. Um, but the, the basic premise is that people were not asserting that they had rights. They were simply referring to, well, this regulation says this or whatnot. And so I decided that I was going to look for the origins of, you know, do we have these rights? And if so, where do they come from? Um, and how can I describe them and uh, find you know, support for them in 
American history and case law and whatnot. And so I kind of went on that quest, um, which yeah, I've been now working on for uh, at least a dozen years. Uh, and the premise behind it, I guess, is one that has come to be known as food freedom, um, which is a term that I use and others do as well. And, and I define that as the right, everyone's right, to grow, raise, produce, buy, sell, share, cook, eat, or drink the foods of your own choosing. And the idea is not that in the same way that the ACLU traditionally um, has defended free speech without, uh, I guess, ascertaining or caring, frankly, about the quality of the speech. Um, I think that people have a right to make food choices, whether or not the food they're choosing is one that nutritionists think is great um, or terrible, uh, whether or not it's one that animal rights advocates approve of or not. Um, these are like religion or like your haircut or any other number of things, personal decisions that the government shouldn't be uh, involved in. And so that's kind of been uh, my guiding uh, path over the last uh, decade plus. And um, yeah, so that's how I, I came to where I'm being. <clears throat> Did this coincide with the what, I, what I'll call the farm to table movement? Was that an added stimulus? Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. There's uh, there has been this growth of, um, and I do some scholarly <clears throat> research, not uh, focused on sort of uh, free market or libertarian things, uh, but just on the history of the field, the food law, food law and policy as it's known. Um, and yeah, we, uh, my, my colleague and I published a, a couple articles on this topic, just about how, you know, where did this field, where did this interest come from? And certainly it's, you know, people like Michael Pollan, um, people like Bourdain, uh, Eric Schlosser wrote Fast Food Nation, right. yeah, whether or not we agree with the, the conclusions reached by these people, um, they're the ones who have helped kind of set the, the tone and the path. Alice Waters of course. Um, uh, and sure, yeah, sure, yeah. so it's uh, food television, uh, the farm to table movement, people caring more about where their food comes from, wanting to know more about uh, and just wanting to meet the farmers and, 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 and whatnot. Um, so it's uh, yes, this is, I would say, a, a subset of that sort of a larger notion of people just becoming more interested in where their food comes from. Yeah, there's just been entire evolution, as you've seen back in the 80s, restaurateurs become rock stars. Now, as we have entered the new millennium, farmers, particularly organic farmers, particularly niche farmers, particularly heritage farmers, have become the newest rock stars in the food movement. And given Americans' obsession with food at all levels, even fast foodies, as they could say, um, are, are, are driven to conversations about what they eat. It's become a national obsession. Simultaneously, the, the notion has arisen from the government side is that a valid tax policy, if you will, is to alter people's consumption habits by taxing it. Of course, this began with the cigarette tax movement, uh, but then rapidly finds itself deploying across every level as if somehow a syntax is appropriate to the food market. Uh, in your, I think it's, a, it's an outstanding piece in Reason Magazine, by the way, you can find Thank it you. at reason.com and we'll share uh, Mr. Lincoln's work again, uh, as well as where to find his book, which has uh, been published and it talks about some issues that we'll talk about later on. But ultimately, where does this stem from, from your experience, this notion that it's okay to tax food 
and it's okay to use tax policy to alter people's cons you know consumer habits. It's. I mean, I think um, uh, Richard Epstein uh, refer has referred to this. Um, he's the and I don't know if he's still there. Um, perhaps emeritus at this point. NYU uh, law uh, professor and noted constitutional uh, historian. He has referred to this as the uh, new public health, and so the old public health was concerned with things like uh, COVID transmission um, or influenza or. Uh, clean water and and you know things that people need in order to uh, survive and not and not uh, you know fall prey to pathogens whether those are uh, viral or bacterial poison um, you know arsenic things like that and so that's what public health was and I think um, most people uh, support that uh, generally um, but then public health shifted in the past two, three decades to focus much more on things like non-communicable diseases. So obesity um, is certainly uh, number one and that has diabetes, et cetera, cancer. Um, and these are uh, you know, the people who've been working in, in public health and uh, public policy around public health um, have, and we've seen this with, uh, Michael Bloomberg and, and certain, you know, uh, and it's not a, it's not, a, I mean, Bloomberg's been what an independent and a Democrat and a Republican. Um, we've seen, uh, Mike Huckabee, uh, when he was governor of Arkansas, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, uh, embracing what I would consider to be lousy, um, nannying public health policies. And certainly, you know, Democrats are around the country uh, have in many cities. Uh, Philadelphia is one, and certainly Seattle, where I live, is another. Um, have embraced these sorts of policies, um, which yeah, they they seek in in the case of the the column that uh, I wrote recently that we're talking about now. Um, soda taxes, you know, it's the idea that uh, they know better than you, and you know, this this one particular food or beverage is so nefarious that we must tax people um, so that they will, you know, they won't uh, make this, this ridiculous choice. Um, it, it's, it's lousy policy. It's, it's lazy. It doesn't work. Um, it, it's, it, it's a, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd hope that this sort of thing was on its way out, but uh, it, it, guess, it's not in <laughs> no. every year. Uh, some flavor of the law <clears throat> finds itself out of its grave, um, joining the other series of undead legislations that take place in a, in a, in a place like Rhode Island. And uh, the same debate is rehashed. It's, uh, you know, essentially it's soda tax redux. Um, that, you know, it is, soda is a contributor uh, to a rising tide of obesity, despite the fact that many would say that uh, soda and sugary beverages are slowly falling out of taste with consumers, uh, a falling out that has nothing to do with the government's intervention whatsoever. Uh, and, and, and for a number of reasons, disproportionately alters, alters the market. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned Philadelphia because Philadelphia, you know, you, of course you've got some, some infamous situations. You've got Seattle, which we'll talk about in a second. Philadelphia, uh, the great Bloomberg big gulp tax. Uh, and you're right. The statistics typically uh, don't support the thesis. We had a situation where we had testimony uh, here in, in Rhode Island 
and they pointed out eagerly the first half of the story, which is in Philadelphia, which is <laughs> that, in fact, the sales of sugary sweet beverages uh, in the immediate post-implementation of the tax fell precipitately uh, what they, in Philadelphia. What they didn't tell you is you saw a nearly offsetting increase in sugary sodas and, and sweet beverages, uh, an increase in the uh, rural and, and suburban areas immediately surrounding Philadelphia. So, and essentially what you've just done by enacting this tax is that you've impacted the profit margins of inner city uh, bodegas and, and marts and things like that who, who find support and profit in these, in these beverages, and mm-hmm. people were still drinking it. So, which I took the opportunity in, my, in a capacity, my former capacity as someone who testified at legislation, to ask why these people were racists and why they were driving business out of the city, which you can imagine was met with the mirth and hijinks that you would think would ensue in that moment. Um, but you wrote specifically about Seattle uh, in the story that we've shared. And, and let's talk about that because Seattle is one of the most more notorious implementation of this. And Seattle seems to be hell-bent on taking the place of San Francisco and Los Angeles where activists, legislators, city councilors directly look to shape people's behavior by onerous taxes. What, what exactly happened in Seattle? So the city um, adopted a soda tax um, a couple of years ago. Maybe it's, wow, probably three years now. Um, and the various uh, you know, studies to date uh, have pointed to a d- decrease in soda consumption in the city and said, hence, ergo, success. You know, um, But of course, none of the, and Philadelphia's was a little bit different because that was actually a law that was intended to raise revenue rather than to combat obesity. Um, they, they argued that you know, a reduction in obesity was going to be a welcome attendant factor or something like that of the uh, legislation. But Seattle was, it was entirely, um, to the best of my knowledge, obesity related. And so, you know, the, the premise, uh, if I can lay out uh, you know, sure. the argument of people who support soda taxes, it is, you know, we'll tax this, people will find it less attractive, they will therefore go and, and choose something that's not taxed like water or um, you know, some other healthier beverage. Now, of course, when you tax something enough, people are going to switch to other uh, alternatives. And, you know, of course, the lawmakers want people to choose the, the water or the healthier alternative, but, you know, uh, they're not uh, forcing you to do that. The, the Seattle tax is interesting in, in one particular way, and, and some cities uh, have done this as well. Um, but it's not a, a tax on the consumer, it's a tax on the seller. And so the seller can choose to raise the price of soda, you know, based on the additional tax, um, or they can spread it over all of their food or, and or beverages. Um, there's a well-known uh, hamburger chain here called Dick's, uh, which you may be familiar with from the uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot song, Posse on Broadway, <laughs> yeah. which I believe was like 88, 89. Um, uh, and or last so, week in the Super Bowl. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I think that uh, you know Seattle did it this way, and so Dix has a tax that they, you know, they have a, a placard up there that says, you know, we're adding eight cents <clears throat> or whatever it is to the cost of your your soda, um, and then you know, uh, but they could just as easily tax uh, raise the price of lettuce in Seattle um, if they wanted to and, and keep the price of soda the same. Uh, so that's kind of silly, but 
in any case, um, what's happened in Seattle is that people did in fact switch. Um, there's a new study out and that's the one I talked about in my article. Um, people did switch away from drinking soda, um, but they switched to beer. That's what the study concluded. They, there's been a 7% increase in beer sales. Um, and they uh, also, the study looked at Seattle and uh, Portland, which does Portland, Oregon, uh, which doesn't have a soda tax and found that, uh, you know, they're, they're very similar. We're, we're, we're very close to Portland, um, that there was no change in beer sales uh, in Portland. And yet there was this increase in Seattle. And so they tied the increase in beer sales to the soda tax. So if lawmakers thought they were outsmarting consumers, consumers, as always, had the last laugh. Right. Now, you bring up, you, you specifically bring up the substitution effect and, 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 you know, and essentially refer to price elasticity um, with regard to both of these products. And they're, they're fundamental, um, fundamental discussions in any layman's understanding of basic economics. And, and it, I'll go first with price elasticity, and I'll see if I get this right. But ultimately, there is always a point, and we've seen it with gasoline a few years ago, and we may be seeing it again soon, where when a product reaches a certain point, then sales start to decrease or hold steady. And once that point is breached, then sales actually start to decrease. Um, so every product has a point of price elasticity where price will affect demand and ultimately then affect supply and then ultimately disrupt the entire marketplace for that product, particularly if there's an externality like government taxation involved. Now, the substitution effect is a little bit more complex. We try to educate here in Rhode Island the substitution effect when we were talking about baseball stadiums. It's a big deal here. And we pointed out to people that uh, if, in fact, you introduce something to a limited economic market, and in case of Rhode Island, it's a disposable income for entertainment, that people would substitute that product for something new. And in the case of something going away, which is ultimately Fortunately, what happened in our case, the minor league baseball team went bye-bye uh, to Worcester, Massachusetts, where it then is in the process of imploding. But when that product went away, well, people took that disposable income, that pool of money that's available for entertainment, and just spent it on something else. And economic activity s still moved along, but in different ways. How is the substitution effect, in your, in your mind, of price elasticity impacting if you will, the overall beverage market, the consumer beverage market in Seattle? So I um, try only to stay within my, uh, uh, within my lane, so to speak, or my wheelhouse, and mm -hmm. economics is not it. Um, so, uh, you know, I can talk about this in, in general sure, terms, but mm -hmm. I, I could talk about the law all day, every day. Um, economics, not so much. Um, so I just want to preface any remarks that- Sure, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, I mean, Seattle's uh, obviously raised, uh, you know, they're, they're, the taxes raised the uh, price of soda enough that people um, who perhaps were already, you know, open to other options besides soda, uh, whether they're, because they're millennials and they aren't drinking soda uh, as much, um, or just because, um, you know, it's not a pandemic thing, again, because this was tested against Portland, which, you know, has exactly the same uh, pandemic going on. Right. Um, you know, it, it made soda unattractive enough um, and beer attractive enough. Now, 
the study didn't look at liquor. Um, and I note that in my column and it, it, it kind of makes sense. Um, I suspect there probably was some switching from beer to liquor as well. Um, but Washington state has the highest liquor taxes in the country. Um, so if you're looking to, you know, the swap, uh, you know, from one high tax item to another, uh, you probably would, uh, you know, you could do that with uh, liquor, but you're going to end up paying many times over, uh, more, uh, you know, when I buy a, a, a handle of, uh, rye whiskey, it's, you know, it doesn't, uh, have to, it's an inexpensive bottle can easily have a $10 tax attached to it. Mm -hmm. And what's the irony of this, uh, you know, in, with regard to the public health implications? Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't drink soda. Um, I generally try to avoid um, sugar um, and, and carbs. Um, you know, I do drink beer, obviously high in carbs, but you know, the idea that you're obviously the public health community and lawmakers, regulators, all these people who made promises around Seattle soda tax, you know, it, it always involved people switching to healthier options. Um, and as the study authors note, you know, the, they don't re reference obesity, but certainly beer is high in calories and alcohol and those things are, are good at making people obese. Um, but there's a host of other uh, issues around uh, excessive alcohol consumption. Um, so, you know, it's, you're not uh, making people healthier. And it's, you know, everyone knows this, the, the, there's no one should be surprised Anyone who say that they're surprised about what exactly has happened in Seattle has just buried their head in the sand for the past 15 years at least, because me and people who came before me and, and you know, people who are better known presently than me have talked about this exact same thing. The people will switch to beer if you tax soda. And I guess lawmakers in Seattle uh, just thought that they were smarter than human nature. That won't be the first time that that charge has been levied against Seattle uh, lawmakers, will it? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with no. Um, <laughs> as much as I love this city and and living here, um, yeah, it, it, our elected officials uh, leave much. Well, it, that's true of of almost any elected officials in this country, but our elected officials leave much to be desired. Well, and, and I guess if we could step back just for a second from your perspective. And, and this is something I hope to visit in the future when we've got more time. But have you found any situation where, whether it be sin taxes, beverage taxes in this case, um, food, restaurant taxes, uh, regulations, prohib you know, with prohibitions built in against, you know, uh, raw products. Is there any situation outside of the most egregious public health violations, but any situation where it's benefited the consumer and or the farmer. It, are you aware of any? Of any regulations at all? Yeah, I mean, it's just not the, not, I mean, clearly we've come a long way from uh, the jungle, the book, The Jungle. We, you know, hopefully in the last 125 years. Uh, and I'm not, even as a hardcore libertarian, I'm not purporting that we go back to that. But you've got this constant intrusion, almost a near obsession with lawmakers and food and beverages and syntaxes. Do you see any examples where they work once you get past public health fundamentals? Uh, you had to throw in that uh, curveball at the end there. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> um, I mean, I think uh, 
Probably not. I mean, I think that there are uh, certainly regulations that are uh, useful and worthwhile. I like to, you know, when I'm speaking to Federalist Society audiences, uh, law schools around the country, and, you know, and inevitably I'll get a, a question from someone who's not a libertarian or a, a you know, free market conservative. Um, and I'll say, listen, I'm not a food anarchist. I, I do support um, some basic regulations, uh, particularly around labeling. Uh, you know, I think that every food product that's sold should have the name of the product, the name of the producer, the way to contact the producer. Yeah. And so that well, if, in fact, there is, say, a, an outbreak of foodborne illness, it can be traced and eliminated. I think that's, you know, that's a, a sensible public health regulation. But, yeah, those are, I think, the, the basic things that you're talking about. Um, most food regulations uh, are pointless and do not make us or our food safer and as I talk about, and I have a very long chapter in my book um, about big food and big government um, and how they basically work together to create laws and regulations that squeeze out and or um, make sure they never get off the ground. The smaller producers, the middle sized producers, um, the Food Safety Modernization Act is one example, not of a good law, uh, but of one that was supported by big business by public health activists. Um, and lo and behold, it's not doing anything to help anyone uh, except the big business and the public health bureaucrats. And, and to that end, before we sign off, and I want to, as I mentioned, I always want to give you an opportunity to engage in one of the favorite aspects of our programming here, which is what we call shameless self-promotion. I do have to give a plug uh, to the Yacht Club Bottling Company, which has been in business over 100 years. It was a boutique soda before boutique sodas were cool. Um, they don't use any of the nasty refinery-style products that the big soda manufacturers do. Uh, real vanilla, uh, real ginger, uh, cane sugar, uh, everything that you'd want in, for someone like yourself who's not a, uh, a casual drinker of soda, but someone who is, if they had that opportunity, would, would want to have a high-end beverage that was using healthy, you know, really grown in the, in the earth ingredients. And, you know, the, the problem with the soda tax for them is that the cost of production for a smaller uh, producer who does not have the vast economies of scale, let's say a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi, um, this would disproportionately affect their pricing, taking them from a, I, don't, I wouldn't call them a luxury product because they're very popular here in Rhode Island, but a, um, uh, something that of a higher end product would blow their pricing up. And I guess my last question is, when you've seen this happen to these smaller niche producers, uh, how often do you see that type of tragic economic consequence between a base level tax, one size fits all, to an organization that ironically produces probably the best of its kind and would put them in economic peril? Is that, is that often seen as a consequence of this? Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, uh, Jones Soda, I think, is based in Seattle, um, and they were opposed to the soda tax. And I'm, I mean, you know, if, if, uh, beer sales are up seven percent. Then, uh, you know, I, it's not a one to one, but I suspect Jones soda sales are down. Um, and it, of course, it's it's you, I see it everywhere, um, and it's it's almost uh, it's almost as if lawmakers uh, don't care. Yeah. You've got a lot on your table, and I want to sign off. I want, you know you've got a, a few challenges tonight that you've got to work on. Uh, but just uh, tell us where folks can find you, where they can find your writing. And uh, give us a, a little bit of a flavor 
for another area of the law that you're, you're starting to dive into with some studies and uh, some potential writing. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I read a weekly column for Reason Magazine, and I have for at least a decade, I guess, at this point. Um, and so Reason.com, I'm also a senior fellow, as you mentioned, at Reason Foundation. And I'm working on a study uh, for them on uh, home kitchen laws. So there are three flavors of that. There are cottage food laws, there are food freedom laws, and there are what are known as uh, micro-enterprise home kitchen operations, or MECO laws. They differ, but the basic premise is that they allow people um, to make food at home, whether that's, say, uh, baked goods, uh, jams, typically low-risk foods. Um, the MECO laws allow people to sell meals out of their home, so they can you know, make mac and cheese or meatloaf and, and sell meals either as part of a supper club in their house or food to go. And food freedom laws, Wyoming was the first, and, and a handful of states have uh, since followed allow a lot of different foods to be sold, not just ones that are shelf stable, um, but might include, say, a cheesecake. Mm -hmm. And so the states, uh, which I think your listeners, listeners would uh, appreciate, um, this is a, a preview. And it, frankly, it's not going to be a surprise because Rhode Island's cottage food law is um, has been widely touted as the worst in the nation. And let me reiterate, it is the worst in the nation. Um, you mentioned Rhode Fabulous. Island farmers, fine people, um, nothing against them, but they are the only people in Rhode Island who are allowed to take advantage of your state's cottage food law. And uh, preview, there are about 20 of them who take advantage of this. So there are more cottage food producers probably in my neighborhood in Seattle. And Washington State has a terrible cottage food law too than there are in all of Rhode Island. Wow. And, and, you know, and, and, and among the reasons I'm so interested in this, just besides a simple desire, again, to, for, for economics to be pulled out of, you know, some of the business consideration taxation policy, is the notion that for many of our newest Americans, many of the poorest folks we can see, much, much has been made of braiding laws, for example, in cities uh, for hair braiding as a barrier to entry-level business success for newly arrived poor Americans. In the same case, it can be argued that these food laws prevent folks from going through that incubation process and starting up what eventually might lead to a food truck, which might eventually lead to a, uh, a, uh, an actual restaurant, uh, and which, of course, has the opportunity through sweat equity and, and a lot of hard, hard work and a maybe a little bit of luck uh, to create economic independence. And I... I've always found it horrifying that governments that purport to and often pander to uh, folks in lower income brackets are in fact some of the biggest obstacles to the type of economic independence that I think everyone craves everywhere. So I, I look forward to having that conversation. Uh, Attorney Lincoln, thank you so much for joining us tonight uh, and I hope you had a good time and uh, Let's, uh, let's talk in the next few weeks and certainly put us on your mailing list and keep us surprised of what you're working on. It's, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's fun and entertaining to talk about, but again, there's a critical economic component to this that directly impacts all our lives, whether we be producers or consumers. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Pat. I really appreciate it. Folks, you just listened to, if you will, the initial broadcast of the Pat Ford Hour here on the Coalition Radio Network. 
outrage porn free, civilly disobedient media broadcasting on the worldwide Coalition Radio Network at coalitionradionetwork.com, facebook.com slash the Coalition Radio, and of course on the mighty, mighty Twitter at Coalition underscore radio. Folks, have a wonderful night, and we'll be back next week. Stay tuned. In just a few minutes, Irina Zuckerman is going to be joining us with the Washington Outsider Report. So if you want to hear uh, some really boots-on-the-ground analysis and foreign policy discussion, that's where to go. Stay tuned. We'll see you soon.